Hello, and welcome to the RamGad Pod, the Realtors Association of Maui Government Affairs Director podcast. I am your host, Jason Economu, Government Affairs Director for the Realtors Association of Maui, and this is my podcast. So today is Tuesday, January 28th, 2020, and I am going to continue with my format change this week that I started last week. So you're just getting one episode this week. We're going to start it off with the notes from the GAD, and then we're going to go into my interview for this week. And that interview was with one of my best friends, Brendan O'Colmain. He is an insurance agent team member with State Farm Insurance over at Kit Okazaki's agency in Pukalani. I'll tell you more about that in just a couple minutes, but first let me give you some notes on a few things that I think you might find important. So regarding really just focusing on community engagement, I really want to tell you guys about some opportunities to testify. Now, this was a slower week for the Maui County Council as far as committee meetings go. They're over on Molokai today, but there are a couple of agendas posted on the calendar that look pretty interesting for next week. If you're going to get involved, if you want to look to get involved and participate by going to one of these committee meetings, I would recommend attending the Climate Action and Resilience Committee meeting scheduled for Monday, February 3rd at 9 a.m. Just go ahead and and Google Maui County Council calendar. You'll probably get to a page or a page will come up that says mauicounty.legistar.com. Go to that. Check out the council and committee meetings, the past ones you can check out, but also you can check out what's coming up. And as I said, the Climate Action and Resilience Committee meeting agenda looks pretty interesting, and it's it's probably worth at least maybe maybe watching the live feed on Akaku if you're not going to go yourself, because this is a new committee. It was it, it's founded and chaired by Kelly King, Council Member Kelly King. She was the the council chair, but she stepped down for you know reasons and is now chairing this committee. And they are addressing some major and and even existential issues. So the agenda for Monday, February third, the meeting is at nine a.m. It's in council chambers, but you know just for instance. They're going to be talking about mitigating climate-activated disasters, setting up resiliency hubs, and community working groups on on climate emergency and a just transition to restore safe climate. Those are heavy topics that you might not expect a county council committee to address. But hey, I mean, we live on an island. We're, We're on the front lines of climate change. So this is cool. RAM isn't getting involved on any of these agenda items, but you might want to get involved. So give it a look. If going and sitting in committee meetings isn't your cup of tea, well, you can get involved with the West Maui Community Plan. So the West Maui Community Plan Advisory Committee has two meetings scheduled for next week. The agendas are not yet available, but they should be available on the CPAC webpage by the end of this week. But the dates and times and locations are as follows. So the first meeting is Tuesday, February 4th at 5.30 p.m. in Keopulani Hall at Wyola Church. The second meeting is Thursday, February 6th at 5.30 p.m. in the Social Hall at the Lahaina Civic Center. If you don't want to get involved with the community plans, that's fine too. If you're a resident of Wailuku, you can check out the upcoming 2020 
annual Wailuku Community Association meeting scheduled for February 12th from 5 to 7 p.m. at the Empanada Lady Restaurant over here on Vineyard Street. The guest speaker will be Aaron Wade, and they'll be discussing the first phase of infrastructure updates in Wailuku and alternate parking locations. So there's a lot that's going to be going on in Wailuku over the next few years. This, this might be worthwhile to check out if you live or work in the area. And let's say that, that local government really isn't your thing, but you still want to get involved. Well, I got an idea for you. Habitat for Humanity's 12th Annual Build-A-Thon. So mark your calendar for Friday, February 21st, and Saturday, February 22nd, for Habitat Maui's Annual Build-A-Thon. The Build-A-Thon is a public awareness and fundraising event. Participants are asked to raise a minimum of $100 per person in pledges and spend a day on the construction site helping Habitat build affordable housing in Lahaina. Lunch, snack, and door prizes will be provided, and available times are from 8.30 a.m. to 4 p.m. To sign up for more information or really any other need, call 808-242-1140. Once again, to sign up or get more info, call 808-242-1140, or you can email Yvonne at habitat-maui.org. That's Y-V-O-N-N-E at habitat-maui.org. Now let's say really the only community you care about is the RAM community. Uh, That's not a healthy view of it, but heck, I'm not here to judge you. You can participate by going to RAM's Got Talent, raising fund to raise funds. For Rams Presidential Scholarship Fund and Maui on Stage. So that'll be February 8th at 7 p.m. at the EOW Theater. For tickets and info, go to ramsgottalent.com. All right, now about my interview. As I mentioned before, my interview this week is with Brendan O'Colmane. Brendan is a close friend of mine. We've known each other for a few years now. But I learned a lot about him in this episode, and I learned a ton about insurance. I learned more about insurance in this episode than I did when I was studying for the bar in South Carolina, and insurance was a required subject. I walked away from from that course not knowing anything about insurance, and I walked away from this interview knowing more about insurance than ever. So, yeah, this is a good episode as far as just like listening to and hanging out, driving around, but it is a great episode as far as a resource. So you might have to take a couple of listens here. (laughs) It's a lot of information, but it's worth it. Give it a listen, hop around a little bit, enjoy. Uh, Brendan does a great job of answering my dumb guy questions. I was blown away by how knowledgeable he is. Uh, I love him as as a person. He's an incredibly sweet and thoughtful guy, and I really hope you enjoy this interview. Yeah. We're on now. We're recording. We're recording. Can you introduce yourself? My name is Brendan O'Colmane. I uh, am an insurance agent team member with State Farm Insurance, uh, Kit Okazaki's agency up in Pukalani. I've been uh, working with that office for almost four years as a licensed insurance agent, and um, really excited to 
chat about insurance, how it works, what's relevant to the realtor community uh, and their clients, just to inform and educate so that you know, we can help their clients understand in more detail what they should expect from their insurance policy, their insurance company, and um, give them an experience that they may not have had when talking to an insurance agent. You know, and uh, yeah. And in the interest of full disclosure, I should let everybody know. And if they've listened to this show, they've heard me say it before. You and I are besties. Like we're we're homies. So, so we go back a few years since. Yeah, since I moved to the island, your your wife is my wife's best friend. Happy birthday, Lantana, by the way. Happy birthday, wife. Um, and it, it's it's uh, January 23rd, so just in case anybody's wondering when we're recording this, it is on my wife's birthday. Uh, and so I met you through your wife, and I just want everybody to know that, yes, this is a bit of favoritism, but I also <laughs> think you're good at what you do. You're You're one of the... The few people that I've met that I'm convinced is actually passionate about insurance. Like, I I know some attorneys that practice, you know, insurance-related law, and they are not nearly as caring about insurance as you are. So that's a big reason why I wanted to have you on, because for realtors, a lot of what you do is talk about insurance, right? Absolutely. I will also mention that we are uh, RAM affiliates. We are a RAM affiliate member. Um, Kit has been in the insurance and financial advice industry for most of his career. He's had the agency for 10 years now. Uh, interesting to start an insurance agency at the pinnacle of the recession, so it's awesome that we've gotten to the point or he's gotten to the point as far as growing his business. He's always been closely connected to the realtor community uh, on, on various levels. Um, and, and just being, as I've said in, in many caravans when I stand up to speak, being a resource to realtors and their clients and also providing them with, whether it's upfront information you know, or advice, and then, of course, we love the opportunity to work with their clients and, and uh, work hard to gain their business. So uh, we're uh, an integral part of the real estate acquisition process and often overlooked in the escrow process that it's just a box that needs to be checked to make a mortgage company happy, uh, provide more in terms of advice and assistance you know, for realtors and their clients. So that's what we strive to do on a daily basis when it comes to property insurance. Right on. I, man, it's difficult. I feel like you're on a roll with insurance. I really want to get into the, the you bit of it all because, you know, I, I like to, to go back in time. Uh, but, but let's stay on the insurance thing for a little while. Okay. Let's just jump right into that for, for everybody listening. We're, we are geared towards realtors. What are, are some top uh, pieces of advice, information, or questions that you wish realtors had, or, or you know, how can you guide our listeners when it comes to the insurance world and how to guide their customers? So from, I guess we can 
start from a realtor standpoint. Um, Which you, you had your um, real estate license, right? I got started in real estate and finance right out of college and also in February 2009. So it's been 10 years in, in this world. So also at the recession. Those <laughs> yeah, the kid and I got started at the perfect time. Um, so I got started in loss mitigation for folks that were struggling to keep their home. They were stuck in a predatory loan. Um, the specifics of their financing when they purchased their home were misrepresented a lot of the time by whoever their producer, their loan officer, mortgage broker was. It wasn't illegal to sell those types of loans, uh, but the expectation was that the borrowers would be able to get into a loan that they could qualify for short-term, uh, you know, adjustable interest rate loan, and then let's say three years down the road, refinance into a 30-year fixed loan. Uh, and I'm sure a lot of realtors uh, who have been in the industry for a long time are well aware of this in terms of what ended up happening was that the bottom fell out of the mortgage industry uh, and these folks couldn't gain access to that 30-year fixed loan. And so their adjustable rate mortgage amortized and their minimum payment went to a full-blown mortgage payment that they couldn't afford and then the bank you know moved to foreclose on them so uh, folks would call in from all over the country we we advertised online uh, Google AdWords and and just to get our services out there and so we operated you know uh, with realtors in most of the states uh, and worked together with them to facilitate the negotiation with the uh, borrowers or with the uh, client's lender uh, to either help them with a loan modification if that wasn't something that they could gain access to help them lessen the impacts of losing their home through short sale uh, and then unfortunately if it got to a serious point where they were going to be foreclosed on. We had uh, legal counsel that we, uh, or the company was aligned with that could help with a bankruptcy. And when you say we, who are you saying? So uh, our company was called EQ Finance, based out of Los Angeles. That's where I got started. Um, and uh, it was actually a good friend of mine who worked in the processing department of that company uh, that, uh, you, I guess you could say, brought me on board. They say, hey, you're great with people, you know, you're uh, very loquacious, <laughs> you're a talker, um, and I think you, you would be good at this and you would enjoy at this because a lot of people need help and uh, you know, there's a lot of opportunity. So my compensation was based solely off of whether or not we could successfully help these people. We did not take any money up front. It was a a, a mutual commitment between that homeowner and uh, our company that would say, we will do everything we can to help you. You've shelled out enough money to try to save your home. I'm sure you have other financial hardships like losing your job, 
It's a big reason why people all of a sudden were unable to continue to make their mortgage payment. And so we're not going to ask for you to, sh you know, to uh, pay us ahead of time for something that we haven't completed yet. Uh, so I worked on a you know 100% commission contingency, which when you're 23 is like oh yeah you know I've seen Boiler Room I've seen Glenn <laughs> Gary Glenn Ross this is gonna be you know uh, Wolf of Wall Street style but I quickly learned that it was a very different environment and we became advocates for people mo many. Most of my clients never got a chance to meet in person. It was purely a phone and email relationship. Um, but it really hit hard when I would have, you know, the husband or the, you know, the, 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 um, the man of the house, whatever you want to call it, um, talking to me quietly over the phone late at night wherever they lived in their garage so that their, you know, husband or wife, depending on who the decision maker was, um, you know, emotional, close to tears. What am I going to do? I feel like a failure, like I'm failing my, my spouse and my kids that I can't provide or we're going to, you know, what are we, how are we going to move forward from this? And so many stories across the board. Um, I, I, it didn't take long before I knew that this was something different, that we were, we were fighters, you know, like I said, advocates. So got started that way, did that for three years in Los Angeles. I eventually got my real estate license out there so I could, um, you know, work on these short sales as a licensed real estate agent in California, but also gain the knowledge base of how the transaction process worked because that's where we really had to dig deep and lock in to have a chance to convince banks, whether big or small, that they needed to compromise in allowing our clients to, to like I said, mitigate the impact of loss by short selling or ideally, you know, restructuring their financing so that they could afford their mortgage payment and keep their home for the long term. Um, so in 2012, I had a, an opportunity to move back home and work in real estate here. Uh, on Maui, and uh, I worked with uh, Dano and Anthony Sales and Remax Lifestyle team. I grew up with Anthony, and, and uh, he had said, "Hey, come to Maui. I'd love for you to to come work with us. I know you've been out there, you know, helping so many people, and I think you, you've you've earned uh, the the right to have a traditional real estate transaction, which I don't think I had for those three years. I think they were all, you know, short sales." Um, and so that was a, a chance I had, you know, an opportunity I had to take to, to be able to do this here. And then for a short period of time, I, I worked with uh, Keller Williams, uh, Maui Realty, uh, Island Living when they started, Lisa Teichner and Randy Antonio, um, Steve Baker and Jordan Smith, people that I really enjoyed in the realtor community and enjoyed working with uh, for a few months. Um, and then Kid Okazaki had approached me and said, hey, you, I've gotten to you know, uh, work with your clients and I, I've known Kid a long time growing up here uh, on Maui. And so he said, I wonder if you'd ever consider um, you know, looking at transitioning into 
you know, insurance. And I sat down with him. I talked at length about how that industry works, what I would be able to bring to the table with my real estate experience, uh, and the relationships that I've been fortunate to, to grow in the, in the real estate community. And uh, I said, you know what? I love the cross-section of helping people, providing them with, you know, that, that advocacy, but also to inform and educate them. So many people that I talked to in even the first six months of working with Kit that had had insurance for most of their lives, you know, whether it's car insurance or uh, property insurance, no one had ever discussed what they're paying for. Mm. No one had ever broken it down for them. They Honestly, I, I've always had insurance coverage as far as my vehicle or, or health insurance and property. I have no idea about any of it. I just know it's like a requirement that I have to have, but I'm one of those folks. And I even, even on the South Carolina bar, insurance is part of the bar. And, and I passed that essay and I still have no idea how insurance <laughs> works. You crammed it into your mind. Yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, it is mysterious to a lot of folks. Is it as complicated as we all imagine it to be? It's contingent on the situation. And I know that sounds amorphous. Um, it sounds like I'm dodging the, the question. You know, I think it's two-pronged. I would say that insurance can be made simple if the person who you're talking to and working with uh, has that approach. I can't expect to get into the details and the nuances of insurance with a client and basically talk them to death and they come out more confused than you know, they were or, or le even it's too much information. So we try to translate and simplify it and break it down for them so that it's digestible uh, but also set clear expectations something and it sounds a little uh salesy one-liner but what i started saying to folks when i began in you know in loss mitigation and short sales um and say i would rather let you know now than let you down later that's great yeah i mean it's a good point and i took that with me when i started working with state farm and you know, as you learn, same thing, when I got licensed for insurance, you, real estate licensing all of a sudden looks so much easier because <laughs> insurance licensing is dense. You, know, you do property and casualty licensing, which is home and auto. Uh, like real estate, it's a national portion of it and a state-specific portion of, of it for, mm. for DCCA licensing. So you, you do that first so that I am able to sell property and, and auto insurance. And then you come back around. Not every licensed insurance agent does this. Most don't try to be jack of all trades, but State Farm you know, is one of the oldest and largest insurance companies in the US. So they also provide financial protection services or financial protection products like life insurance, like disability insurance. So that's the second part of it is you go back and you study for life 
and uh, and health products, not HMSA Kaiser health products, but more of you know the the what happens if you get hurt and you can't work and you lose that paycheck. Do you have a protection plan in place that's going to help your family, you know, with that increased financial burden? So um, there's a lot to it. And as I went along in my first year or two, learning you know, not just about how the products work for people, but experiencing the claims process with people and understanding that insurance is a financial promise that a company makes to you, the insured, if you will, the client. Um, but it's not an unconditional relationship. Very much conditional. It's conditional on each claim situation. It's conditional on what's covered and not covered. And so that's the let you know now, not let you down later, is doing what you can to explain how the policy is going to work for them. And if they ever have a loss, if they ever have a fire, if they ever have a flood in their house, or someone breaks in and, and steals their personal property, what to expect from the claims process. Um, where there might be limitations in coverage. That was something that Kit stressed to all of us and, and our, you know, we have a team of eight in our office. We're the largest office on Maui and one of the largest State Farm offices in the state. We really need that workforce, that team, in order to do what we do for our clients. Uh, but as much as he taught me about what we offer our clients, there was even more that we learned about the whole structure of the policies, you know, that that they get from us or you know, what we provide to them. So I think we're not the only office or agency in the insurance industry here on Maui that has that same approach. But insurance is supposed to be a like I said, a box checked off of the to-do list during their escrow process. Their mortgage company says, okay, who are you, are you going to get your insurance from? Now, I know realtors have a responsibility to provide more than one name. Mm. You, you know, that's, that's the same thing that we do if you know, someone asks about a plumber, electrician, or a contractor. I'm not going to say, oh, yeah, use this person. Say, let me give you three names. Uh, so that you can call around and get estimates or you know, see what the best fit would be. And I understand we're not the best fit for everyone. State Farm's not the cheapest insurance in the industry, nor do we want to be. Uh, you, uh, our differentiation is, is based on you know, price and protection and service. I don't discuss insurance with our potential clients based on how much I can save them. You know, mm. I look at it as let's get you protected, and then if if we can save you money, that's a cherry on top. Um, it's not 15 minutes or less to for 15 percent <laughs> or more. I know that there's two sides to the industry. Um, there is plenty of value in that because statistically, the likelihood of your house burning down is is relatively low. So, you know. Many people say, I've never had a claim before. I've been paying for insurance for the last 30 years. Uh, I've never had to use it. And so I want the cheapest possible. I totally respect that. I, I uh, you know, probably pay more in insurance to State Farm than I would like to. <laughs> I have all the cards, you know, the trading cards in the deck, so to speak. Um, but uh, I, I really understand that, you know, 
if we can make it affordable uh, without compromising on coverage, that we're going to work to do that, but not at running the risk of cutting coverage so that we win your business. Um, because you're not going to ultimately be successful in, in, that, uh, in that relationship with the client. I kind of, I always look at real estate and insurance as limited law licenses. You know, you guys are, are kind of in the same realm as attorneys. And the corollary I can think of while you're talking is if I get in legal trouble, I can rely on the public defender or I could have some super high priced attorney on retainer that I'm paying, you know, thousands of dollars to a month to make sure that they're on retainer. Or I could find somebody in the middle that I can have a relationship with, that I know their their qualifications and, and trust, and I pay a reasonable rate and I get that that service that's that's one on one. I mean, you're absolutely right. The likelihood that your house is gonna burn down, or even of a flood. A flood is is, is a higher likelihood, but still you know, the odds, depending on your area, uh, might be pretty low. And it's great to have that box checked. But if that ever happens, it would be nice to call somebody who I've actually spoken to before. Mm. You know, like, get that person on the line and, and, and have them walk th- walk me through what they walked me through in the past to, to settle my nerves. So I, I get it. I get what you're saying. You know, there's, there's uh, different priorities for different people. But you, you certainly make a good argument for having somebody that you actually have a relationship with. Most of our clients that are currently insured, so not that they're going through a home purchase and they're acquiring a policy for the first time, but they've had their home or condo insured for a long time and they're calling to shop around. A lot, you know, many people are shopping around for better rates, but. Uh, just as many people call in because they've had an unfortunate negative claim experience. Sometimes it's because they expected something was going to be covered and turns out that it wasn't covered. Uh, I guarantee you they probably didn't have a conversation when they started with that company or started that policy where their expectations were set. Um, but a lot of the times, they may have eventually gotten, let's say, the payout to fix or repair their home or to recoup the financial loss from their personal property being stolen. They're, but they're calling us because throughout their claims experience with their current carrier, it was 1-800 number. Mm after another, one department extension after another, and they just want a human being that in an office, a physical location, and human beings that are physically here so that they can call in, come into the office, sit down. And so a lot of what we do after they decide to to switch over is answer basic questions, provide them with information as time goes on and just be that resource for them. That's the majority of, of the service we provide is the, you know, the risk management advice. And um, it's easy in, in 
encouraging them to consider us for insurance to say if your house burned down would you want amidst all of that chaos would you want to wait on hold mm. calling an 800 number or would you want to come straight into the office and sit down with kit so or our claim specialist in the office wayne who's been with state farm for over 30 years in claims and then we were able to uh, acquire him, if you will. <laughs> so I call him Wayne's Cyclopedia Claim Tanica because, and I sit next to him in the office, I constantly reaching out to him for information. So I, you know, I can share that with our clients. Uh, he's seen it all. And so that oftentimes becomes the the catalyst for them to make a decision to switch uh, is because they just want a person. Are you my person? You know, people ask that. So are you my, my, my guy? You know, you're going to be my guy. And I say, yeah, you have seven other people here in the office that are fully licensed and very knowledgeable and capable of helping you. But yes, the reason why I understand that you're making this decision to change how you approach insurance, the crux of that is that you have a person or a guy or a gal. We have gals too. Yeah. <laughs> so um, that's, that's where the rubber meets the road, no pun intended, to insurance. That when something happens, you have people that are there. And company-wide and especially our agency uh, stresses that in contrast to the other side of the industry, which is let's, you know, let's lock it in. One phone call, hopefully you never have to call us, where it's like, if you have to call us, you can call us. Mm. Um, and then if our office is closed or it's the weekend, there is a 24-hour line to get the ball rolling. And when we get back into the office, we know that something's happened and you'll get a call from us you know, that very next day. So. In the same sense of helping my clients, you know, that were going through the short sale process or trying to save their homes, um, they had a person because they were given the insane runaround by their mortgage company. Oh, yeah. And never talked to the same person twice. And um, I feel that same need to be there for them, you know, now that... I'm in the financial protection, asset protection industry, and you know we we use those terms because that's more of what insurance does versus take your money and you know, for because the mortgage company said so. Yeah, it's so. a safety net. Yeah, it's it's insurance is assurance. It's the most valuable thing that Americans acquire the majority of Americans can acquire in their lifetime is it's one of the greatest financial you know, upward mobility tools if not the greatest that Americans have access to here the real estate industry has revolutionized economic upward mobility in this country yeah you know I know things have changed since uh, the GI Bill you know post World War II where you could buy get a loan because you fought for your country and uh, pay $15,000 for, you know, a brand new home in a brand new neighborhood. 
uh, and pay it off in 30 years and then you know you have an appreciating asset that you know can be not only for your life but for your future generations you know a game changer yeah to build and maintain wealth it, real estate is really probably the only way that that an average american um, can do that successfully these days that you know investing in the stock market is great and having a retirement fund is is great but you don't have the same economic opportunity outside of real estate in many other areas um, maybe classic cars but but those <laughs> I, would, I would much rather bitcoin. have a house than than bitcoin or <laughs> or than some classic cars uh, maybe some art but, but some of the art that, that people pay a lot of money for, I'm, I'm sure that banana duct tape to a wall isn't going to be as, as expensive <laughs> in 10 years as, as a house will. It won't appreciate with the same level as a house. So now you have that amazing opportunity and that concrete asset. You have a, the beginnings of a financial portfolio. You would want to do everything in your power to protect that investment. Now, I want to ask you some some of the more basic insurance questions related to property. How are home insurance and condo insurance different? Here we go. Let's do it. Nerd time. Let's nerd out. My wife loves it when I talk about this at cocktail parties. But you know what? I don't I don't uh, solicit the the conversation. Many friends Parents, friends that I grew up knowing will approach me and say, hey, by the way, I had a question, you know, I'm curious. And, uh, and then that kind of uh, turns my, uh, my, my gears start turning. And I'm like, oh, ask away. Let me, <laughs> let me uh, demonstrate my knowledge base on this, you know. But anyway, so house insurance. Uh, there's really two products, if you will, that we offer and provide to our potential clients who, let's just say, purchasing a home. So we get a call in, hi, I was referred to you by my realtor. Uh, great, thank you for the opportunity. I'll definitely be reaching out to them to say thank you. Uh, I'm purchasing a home here on Maui, and I wanted to get a quote. It's usually the first thing. I just need to get a quote because mm. my mortgage company said so. And I say, well, is this your first time purchasing a home? Is, is this your first time home purchase? Well, yeah, it is. We know that we're taking it in the homeowner policy, primary residence direction. And the conversation is going to obviously be steered around how you are you know, protecting this amazing opportunity that you've worked hard to be able to qualify for. You've been searching in the market for something that is somewhat affordable for you, and especially here, yeah. as, you, as you know. Uh, and then slow down to dive deeper into what it's going to do for you because it's another expense on their monthly mortgage payment. So I want them to know what they're paying for. So homeowner's insurance is a blanket term, a buzzword that's often used when anybody talks about 
insurance. Uh, but based upon the use of that property takes the client in one of two directions. So homeowners, your primary residence, your second home here on Maui for our snowbirds who split time between their home on the mainland and their home here in Hawaii, uh, that's going to be homeowners insurance. It, they occupy it. The other prong of insuring property, standalone homes, is what we refer to, and it's an industry standard term, is the rental dwelling policy. So for rental property they're purchasing, investment property they're purchasing, where they might eventually move here full time and then live in it as their primary residence when they retire. But they're taking advantage of the opportunity they see in front of them and it will be a tenant-occupied rental home to start, let's say. That product works very similarly to a homeowner's insurance policy, uh, but there are some key differences as far as how it protects the client, uh, given that it's not them in the, in the home, it's a tenant in the home. Now, I want to stop you and ask a quick question, and you can tell me if I'm jumping too far ahead with the explanation. But here we have Ohana's. It's, it's common for a property to have both a, an accessory dwelling and the main dwelling. And a lot of folks rely on the accessory dwelling to pay their mortgage. So they have a renter in there where they live in the accessory dwelling and they have a renter in the main house. Um, what kind of insurance would you get both? Would the homeowner insurance generally cover that? Where would, where would that fall, do you think? Excellent question. Uh, You're going to give me the lawyer answer. It depends, right? <laughs> <laughs> Funny you should ask that. A an extremely common scenario that we get with people that call in to get a quote, to get quotes. And there are two sides of this coin. The mortgage company cares about the structure or structures. If something happens to the main house or happens to the Ohana, fire is always the most extreme and clear-cut example. Um, oftentimes in the industry, the buzzword is fire insurance. I just need fire insurance. Well, your homeowner's policy is gonna do a lot more for you in sort of covering the things that might happen besides fire. But I use fire because it's the easiest thing for our clients to wrap their heads around. Yeah. And so let's say your house burns to the ground. The bank cares that it's going to be rebuilt so that their interest in the property, because until you pay off your mortgage, the it's bank their owns, property. <laughs> and I learned that back in 2009, uh, that that assets you know, going to be rebuilt and thus value maintained. So that's what the mortgage company cares about. What you should also care about is your stuff that is in that house. Yeah. Your other, I guess you could say assets, you know, your personal property, your clothes, your furniture, your electronics, your kitchen utensils. And also from a financial protection standpoint, your liability risks. And if your house does burn to the ground, you're still responsible for paying that mortgage payment every month. But now you have to go rent somewhere while it's being rebuilt. Yeah. So you're paying a mortgage still, and now you have to figure out how to pay rent on top of that. So your homeowner's policy 
has coverage built in that is going to help with that increased financial burden. So mortgage company needs to know that the structure is covered. Obviously, you need to feel secure that the structure is going to be covered. But also the things that are in it, financial burden that you may incur because of something that happens. And on a, another side is protecting yourself from potential liability situations. Um, so, of course, if there's a main house and an ohana on the same property, the bank needs to know that those independent structures are separately covered. Because okay. if your tenant burns down the ohana, your house is fine, and the ohana needs to be rebuilt. Similarly, you not only have uh, a structure that is going to take time to be repaired or rebuilt, but the tenant needs to vacate because they can't live there anymore. It's uninhabitable. Now you're not getting that rental income anymore, that rental income that is vital for you to be able to afford your mortgage payment. So the policy, that rental dwelling policy you would have on the Ohana, protects you in the same sort of way where instead of loss of use of your primary residence, you have loss of rents coverage mm. on that Ohana policy. So you can tell State Farm, look, I was getting $3,000 for this two-bedroom Ohana that I was renting out. Now I'm not anymore because there's no tenant in it. And you can claim on the, the loss of rents so that you aren't out that vital rental income that is integral to continuing to pay your mortgage and being able to afford it. Um, likewise, on the liability side, you're involved in a business relationship when you have a tenant. Yeah. The landlord-tenant, as, you know, as an attorney, I'm sure you're versed in this, probably more than so than myself, uh, the landlord-tenant relationship and arrangement is very conditional. Yes. Even though you own the property, you own the house, that is the tenant's home. And when I was a realtor and I'd show tenant-occupied property for sale, I was very adamant about letting the tenant know that I respect that it is their home. Because otherwise, they would roadblock mm. being able to show it. And you hear when a new listing's for sale on Caravan, sometimes a realtor will say, Ohana's tenant occupied, you, so if you want to schedule a showing, you need to be patient that A, the condition of the interior might be not the most conducive for uh, curb appeal or you know, uh, visual appeal yeah, it's for your client. Deal. There's tchotchkes on shelves. There's family photos on the wall. You know, and so you need to use your imagination a little bit more as to what it could look like. Um, so I've always approached it that way. And, um, and with insurance, that's what we talk about when we're talking about Ohanas that are tenant occupied is, you know, it's kind of a stretch situation, but I'll say, look, your tenant has a party. They overserve someone alcohol. That, and this is my insurance nervous mother talking, 
that friend that they invited over drives drunk, crashes, God forbid, kills somebody. We live in the land of the litigious. Yeah. That family of the deceased person is going to come back and say, or well, let's say even more so, uh, police ask that uh, person that crashed, where were you tonight? Because you are way over the limit. Oh, is that a friend's party? Then it starts snaking back to that tenant of yours that threw the party. Well, you overserve them. You're potentially liable for what happened. But it's a renter. You know, they're on limited income. They may not have assets to, to pursue. Um, everyone, ha unfortunately, runs the risk of having their wages garnished in yeah. an extreme case if a judgment's filed against them in civil court. And we tell people that. It's, oh, I don't have anything to, for anybody to take. Do you get a paycheck every month? People yeah. always say that, like especially the, the sketchiest people. I had a client who owned a business that had lots of assets. And that's about as, as detailed as I get into that. But this person kept on saying, well, even if we lose, it's not like they're going to get anything from me. I said, yes. Yes, they will. <laughs> like, especially if the government is involved. The government is great at getting at people's assets. But, but you're absolutely right. And especially with the litigious society. Because, you know, it's not even necessarily out of malice or, you know, being brought up poorly. But imagine if you lose a loved one. The things that, that people do when they're in grief and the, the folks that they want to go after and attack. I mean, if the law is the only weapon you can wield, then you will wield it at anybody that you think might have done some harm to you, might have caused that pain. So, so yeah, that's a, a great consideration that, as to why you would want insurance, especially if you have a renter. So let's say the attorney for the family um, of the, you know, the person who was killed in that car accident looks at the whole picture, looks at the tenant's assets, and says, you know, folks, I want to do everything I can to at least help you with some financial relief. I can't help you with the physical loss of that loved one. I can't help you with the emotional loss of that loved one. Um, but we can work to help you with the financial loss of that loved one, the income that they would have accumulated over the course of their life, which was vital to their family's financial support is not going to be there anymore. You now potentially have a, a widow or widower with children that's now on a single income. So the attorney is going to say, look, the tenant really is not where we should allocate our efforts or I, what you are paying me for. But the owner of the property indirectly allowed for this party to take place. Mm. You just go for the deepest pockets. And they own that property. Chances are that there's something there. And, you know, a suit has to be valid, right? You know, it has to be admissible in court. But that attorney could bleed you dry during that suit. And so 
when we talk to them about liability coverage on a rental dwelling policy, A, we're going to make sure they have a higher limit of liability on that policy than their primary residence policy because of the potential issues that can arise. But also letting them know that you know, not only is this liability coverage going to be there if a judgment is filed against you, but it's also there for you to use those funds to f hire an attorney to f to protect you know to uh, defend yourself in court. Yeah. And so sometimes people, when we're talking about the nuances or specifics of that type of policy, didn't know that their liability coverage can be used also for that purpose. So whether your tenant wants to sue you because you know they feel like you're, you know, like you did something that they think is worthy of, of uh, going to court over, or some extreme situation like the party analogy that I used, um, that those, that's a key difference in, in how to protect themselves you know, from potential you know, financial loss, financial ruin. Um, so main house, Ohana, when they're purchasing a property, you, if it's their primary residence in the main house, they're going to have a homeowner's policy, and then they're going to have a separate rental dwelling policy. So both structures are covered. They have the financial uh, loss coverage that they need for whatever might happen, and that the liability coverage is, is relevant and sufficient to protect themselves. So when we talk about house insurance, you know, those are really the two pieces of, of the coverage puzzle. It, is it the same thing if it's a condo? Condos. Yeah. That's, that's, that's a whole new world. Whew. And a very, very common world in real estate sales. Absolutely. Yeah. We, uh, you know, it's usually the first toe that buyers dip into the Maui waters. You know, I've been coming here for 30 years, started staying at the Grand Wailea. Then we fell in love with Maui Kamaole. We've been staying at Maui Kamaole for the last 10 years. And we're getting to the point where, you know, we're, we're, the kids are out of the house and we have too much, you know, space, you know, uh, and we have some uh, some liquid assets that we would like to roll into, you know, real estate investment, and so uh, we're going to buy in there, so that we have an excuse to come here more often, but also short-term rentable, so there's some income potential there too, that can help as a cost offset to buying this. So similarly, there's two prongs of the condo insurance, you know, product line, if you will, if they are pulling up stakes, selling their house that's too big for them on the mainland. They're moving over here full time to live out their lives in paradise uh, in the condo community that they fell in love with years ago. Then they're going to have a primary residence condo policy, condo unit owners policy. It's also colloquially referred to as an HO6. That's just a you know, buzz term again, yeah. industry term that I, I try not to use too much, but a lot of people refer to it as HO6 because 
that is essentially the name of the policy. So I'll drop that if I want to sound smart. Oh yeah, talking to an homeowners. Is, homeowners is HO three and condos HO six. But um, so it's their new condo home here in Maui. Condo insurance operates very similarly to home insurance, more so on the liability and the personal property side and the loss of use side. But the key difference with condo insurance is how it's protecting the structure. Mm. So to the chagrin of almost every buyer I ever worked with purchasing a condo on Maui, association fees. Yeah. The fees, the fees. Now with rental condo communities, you know, vacation rental condo communities, your association fees go toward a lot, many things. Uh, maintenance of, of the property itself. Uh, you know, if there's a pool, if there's a, you know, uh, even a gym there. Yeah. You know, uh, some of the higher end communities like Ho'ole, you know, have amazing gyms. So there's a lot of common area elements that um, you need to be maintained, but also need to be protected. So another part of what your association fees go towards is the insurance policy that the association has on the entire community. Um, now, often that's referred to as a master policy. And the master policy covers the bones of the building, if you will, the exterior structure. We often refer to it as walls out. And I'll, I'll explain, you know, what walls out means versus walls in. So let's say the, again, clear cut example of what could happen, major fire burns the whole building down. Not just your unit, but your neighbors who you share walls with and that building needs to be rebuilt sticks and stones sticks to bricks I say the master policy is going to rebuild that structure foundation framing the roof that's what your master policy is is covering as far as the structure goes now the shell's been rebuilt and we go from walls out to walls in. Now we're talking about your, your unit. That's when your individual unit owner's policy comes into play. Every single master policy is going to be different in one way or another. The company that insures that community, how the association decides it needs to be covered. And I tell every potential client purchasing a condo to review their master policy or get a summary of their master policy. CCNRs, condo docs are like, it's like reading the dictionary. For, I would never expect, unless you're really into it, someone to read through all of their CCNRs because it's usually 50, I've seen it even be 100 pages in some cases. Yeah. But the master policy typically is gonna be a, a one to two page summary of how the the structures in the community, you know, the buildings are covered, and it's most of the time blanket coverage we call it. So you'll see, you know, for let's say Maui Kama Ole, there's structure coverage for thirty million dollars. And it sounds like okay, what does that mean? Well, depending on what happens, 
it's $30 million that the association has access to to recoup you know, loss if it's a fire that burns down the building. And if, let's say, it's a, uh, you, a fire so big that it built, burns multiple buildings, then you do $30 million allocated applicably for the reconstruction. They're going to rebuild that structure up to its, I wouldn't say original construction, because with older condo communities that were built in the 70s or the 80s, you're not going to get the same construction. It's 2020 now. So they're going to rebuild it up to similar construction from when it was originally built. You know, the, the framing is going to be the same if, you know, if it's a, uh, you know, if it's a concrete block building, that's how they're going to rebuild it. And into the interior walls, they're going to rebuild the, the shell of the interior. Now, if you're buying a condo, and many of these communities and these units for sale have been renovated, they have been updated, they have been upgraded, the master policy is not going to pay for the upgrades that you bought, essentially. So your unit owner's policies, interior building coverage, kicks in to finish out your unit. So if you have granite countertops, if you have travertine floors, if you have luxury, you know, high-end appliances and Studio Snydero cabinetry, uh, your unit owner's policies, interior building coverage is going to cover to install those upgrades that were rolled into the purchase price of that unit. Otherwise, you're just going to get that original shag carpeting <laughs> from how it was first built. You know, uh, and so those unit owner's policies need to have sufficient coverage for interior building. Some people say, ah, you know, it's original, I don't need anything. We're always going to just encourage them to consider having interior building coverage because... The last thing you want is for there all of a sudden to be a gap in coverage and for the association's master policy to say, hey, your unit owner's policy is now in charge of rebuilding the interior. Well, I only have $10,000 in interior building coverage. And so we're going to encourage people, especially since condo insurance for your, the unit owner's policy is going to be significantly less expensive than let's say homeowners insurance because yeah. you, your master policy is one part of how your unit's covered and your unit owners is the other part um so it's saying hey it's not going to cost a whole lot more for you to have some some coverage there just in case um and especially if we're talking about a higher end luxury condo community like i, I use whole because they're so uh, well appointed on the interior that there's going to be really robust coverage um, because of, you know they have elevators and elevators are part of the interior so then some folks say well every Ho'olay's got an elevator it's like yeah but if uh, your kitchen floods and it floods into the elevator shaft and downstairs to your bedroom levels uh, there's going to be significant significant loss uh, and you're going to need to access that coverage. About 40% of the claims that we deal with 
our water loss claims. Whether it's a leaky faucet, someone forgets that they ran their bathtub and it overflows, uh, the unit hasn't had a, uh, a guest in it for a few weeks or you know, the property manager only stops by once or twice a month, uh, the potential for there to be significant water loss you know, or significant water damage over time is a much, much higher than if you lived in it full time. So if it's your house or excuse me, your condo that you live in full time, you know, your HO6 policy uh, is going to cover you that interior building coverage and then provide the same types of coverages that a homeowner's policy, personal property, liability and loss of use. Now, the other side of that is the rental condo policy. So it is you might come a few weeks a year to you know, enjoy your Maui home. Um, but if it's an investment where you're renting at 100%, you want to see that thing working for you. Yeah. You want to see that rental revenue rolling in you know, and uh, either be a cost offset or you know, float a, a mortgage that you have. Because typically the terms of an investment property, uh, you know, the, mortgage, the loan terms of an investment property, interest rate's going to be higher. Down payment's going to be, you know, you're going to have to put in a higher down payment. His payment might be higher than if it was your primary residence. So we need that rental income working. Um, the rental condo policy is going to do very similar things that you know the HO6 would do. And again, like you know, a rental dwelling where it's being rented out on a short term, you know, or uh, it, sorry, in the, in the case of condo is going to be rented out on a short term basis, nightly basis, weekly basis. Uh, there's going to be loss of rents coverage. There's going to be higher liability coverage there. Uh, and of course, you know, if it's fully furnished, which it would be personal property and, um, and then of course, interior building coverage. So two prongs of the condo side, um, similar to how a homeowner's policy or rental dwelling policy will cover you. But it's important to know whether you're a realtor that's just advising your clients on what they need to get insurance wise. Um, but more so for the client and, and understanding how that master policy and how their unit owner's policy works. And again, fortunately, I have to disclose and back up and say every situation is different. Every community is different. And uh, doing what you can to sufficiently protect yourself and protect your asset when it comes to condos, um, you're not going to break the bank to make sure that there's enough coverage there or the right kind of coverage there. So the conversation's a little bit different. And unfortunately, there are some conditions and pieces of that puzzle that we, we need to be even more upfront uh, because you're also subject to things that can happen above you and things that you can do to the person below you yeah and how that might work in claims process well who's responsible who's paying to fix this repair this rebuild this uh, and that can definitely get tricky and then that definitely triggers the whole litigation aspect of things especially if the kind of clientele that owns in Ho'olei and the kind of clientele that owns at Wailea Beach Villas um, they're they may 
have an attorney on retainer yeah that they want to get their money's worth <laughs> and so they will make that phone call and say hey this happened and insurance companies giving the runaround or the person above me says that's not my fault yeah and you'll have you'll have folks who will get into legal battle before they ever get into interpersonal communication i i once uh, was involved with a case where the first time that these two individuals who are on opposite sides of, of the case, one was a neighbor above, one was a neighbor below, uh, the first time they actually met and talked to each other was about three years into litigation. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, so yeah, it's, it's certainly a fear, you know, that, that insurance being important for, for just the legal aspect alone, even if the property damage isn't that much. You're going to want it for, for the lawyer damage, the, the legal bills. Yeah. And, and you know, we, as a, an agency, work hard to, if we don't already have a personal, I wouldn't say personal, or pro professional relationship with a property management company where we know the office, we know the folks that work there, awesome when they refer their clients to us, but they are the ones property managers that we say, look, call us, mm. you know, and we're not going to give you an 800 number for your clients to call. You are their point of contact here on island. You are their person. Yeah. You are part of protecting their asset in terms of, you know, managing guest issues or having to deal with the nuts and bolts of a claim where you have to let, you know, uh, remediation companies into the unit. You have to deal with the cancellation of bookings. You have to facilitate construction workers coming in to do the repairs, the rebuilds. So we're connected with the property managers and property management companies more directly than we might be with our own clients because they're off island. They're paying 20-30% of their rental revenue to these property management companies to take care of their places. Uh, so if we ever have a claim situation, we are closely aligned with the property managers during, during that process. Um, now when let's say and i love working i've always loved working with first-time home buyers i've always loved working with you know folks where it's their it's their first purchase and in maui a lot of the time that first purchase is going to be a condo because that's the price point that they can gain access you know do where they can actually afford to buy to start off uh, whether it's el parkside or it's kamalani or it's kihei villages I say to those clients, please get to know your neighbors. Or well, mm. fir first thing I'll say, are, you know, you're on the second floor. You know, please get to know your neighbors below you and next to you. Or you're on the first floor. Please get to know your neighbors above you. Because if you come home and there's water leaking from, you know, from your ceiling into your kitchen, it's going to be a lot easier if you're friendly with them, if you have some sort of relationship with them as a neighbor, then if you don't know who's above you, whether it's a tenant that 
you know, rents that place or it's another owner, get to know your neighbors. Because with condo losses, you guys share walls, you guys share ceiling and floor. Uh, and so if there's a claim like that, you're going to be sharing the experience together. You're going to be in the process together, whether, you know, they have their own insurance and they have their own company. Um, you know, it will make your lives a lot easier if you know your neighbors, period. I mean, these days, I know in our society that we might not be as neighborly as well, maybe our grandparents were couple of generations ago, you know, people are, seem to be more insulated, you know, online more. Yeah. Uh, or privacy, you know, they don't want to bother their neighbors. Um, so with your home, when you're in a residential neighborhood like that, of course, you, you don't share walls. You, so you're, you're not as linked as you would be when you live in a, in a condominium. So you're absolutely right. I mean, we try to encourage people to, to have some sort of a relationship with their their neighbors in their community so that if something does happen, you don't have that uh, potential animosity, that disconnect, or it's, you'll be hearing from my attorney yeah, off the bat. It's part of risk mitigation. It gets back to that basic principle that, that you're going for here, the, the mitigating the risk. If you have a good relationship with somebody, you're mitigating the risk of conflict on any level. And you're also speeding up the, the ability to get something solved. I mean, if you have a relationship with your upstairs neighbor, it's gonna be you know a minute or two faster to call that person immediately if you have their phone number than it is to, to you know run upstairs and bang on the door and hope that somebody's home to, to handle whatever leak is going on. So it's, it's good advice just in general to communicate with people, um, have those open lines of communication. Now, we just, we, we, that was a deep dive into insurance. That was good. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, as you can tell, uh, you know, um, four years in and you start to experience these scenarios with your clients. Um, I wouldn't have been able three years ago to manage expectations the way I can now because I didn't have the perspective of how it can go great. I mean, the best it can be, especially in a claim situation. Or, you know, it's the good, the bad, and the ugly, right? Or how bad or ugly it can be in a claim situation. Yeah. Um, so, as you can tell, I mean, we'll talk about what's covered, what's not covered. Uh, you know, and, okay, so there's a claim, what happens? But a lot of the time, it's, it's the intangibles, you know, of protecting yourself and uh, you know, there's there's a way, you catch more flies with honey, there's a way that it can go as best as, as it can be, uh, best as possible, and there's a way it can go the complete opposite direction. Um, so, yeah, I, I, I like being in that position to be able to share that with people. I am sure that you get a ton of questions on flood insurance. And it's yeah. interesting because flood insurance is a major realtor issue. Um, our national association is, is constantly sending us updates on the national flood insurance program. We, we care about flood insurance. We're involved in, in all aspects of flood insurance. And 
most of us in the realtor sphere don't actually know that much about flood insurance at all. <laughs> that might be a, a unfair assessment, but even me, I, I have a hard time with flood insurance. What does every realtor know or need to know in order to equip their clients when it comes to flood insurance? It is a common question that I love fielding from realtors uh, because it's a common question that their clients have. I, I find that it comes up a lot, you know, many times and, and if they ever dive into the insurance conversation with their realtor, you know, clients are saying, well, what about flood? Now, flood can get confusing because we use flood we use the word flood interchangeably when we're discussing their, let's say, homeowner's policy. Mm. So I always say if people are curious or concerned about what's covered and not covered, the, the key word in, in that is sudden occurrence. One moment, water wasn't gushing from your kitchen sink, plumbing. The next moment it was or is. At one moment, your house wasn't on fire, and the next moment, it was. At one moment, someone didn't break into your house and steal all of your stuff. The next moment, you, get, you come home and you realize that's happened. Um, so there's interior and exterior flood, or floods that could happen to your home. So interior flood from a sudden discharge of water, that is covered under your homeowner's insurance. Exterior flood from a sudden rush of groundwater is not covered under your homeowner's policy. The way it's going to be covered is if you have flood insurance through the National Flood Insurance Program provided by FEMA. And so that's a lot of the questions that we get about FEMA's flood policies is what risk level or you know, what risk potential does this property have in terms of you know, exterior flooding, you know, a sudden rush of groundwater? Yeah. Is it close to the ocean where a tsunami would flood it? Is, it, is the property located in an area where the potential for flood risk is higher? And you, could you get me some information from my clients on whether or not you know, they need to look at flood insurance or if their risk level is really low? And so it's more of an option. Now, a lender is going to know because they will tell you what they want covered. A lender is going to know if you're in a higher risk flood zone that you're going to be required to get FEMA's flood insurance. Luckily, the majority of Maui, of the island of Maui, is in low-risk classification. Now, I'm not going to get into all the uh, alphabet soup of it, but uh, a lot of realtors will at least be somewhat familiar with Zone X, which sounds like it, it might be the danger zone, right? Yeah. yeah. Zone <laughs> X. But actually, Zone X is lowest risk. I'm just thinking of, uh, of that movie, Triple X, with Vin Diesel. <laughs> right when you said that, it's just, welcome to the Xander Zone. Uh, so, <laughs> so Zone X. Zone X. Most of on. the time, 
when I run and I, you know, I have a tool that I use where I plug in the parcel number, the address, um, and it, you know, it's a FEMA, a FEMA software system that's going to spit out what zone it's in. Mm. So nine times out of 10, 99% of the time almost in a lot of cases, property is going to be in zone X. I can share with the realtor what a ballpark, if you will, figure would be for how much the flood insurance would cost if their client is concerned about flooding and say, even though it's optional, I still want to obtain it just to be really safe and yeah. just to make sure because uh, torrential rain flooding is is a lot more common than, let's say, a you know, raging river living next to EL stream or river when we've seen it. Yeah, it gets we, up We've there. seen what can what can happen in that area, in that neighborhood, um, you know, in the news in the past few years, um, you know, and, and areas of, let's say, Happy Valley and Wailuku that are close, you know, to the river or in a higher risk zone, um, you know, absolutely, if they aren't required to have it because they've paid off their mortgage that they, sh you know, they need, they should have it. Um, but uh, I'll give you know a realtor ballpark figure so they could at least share that with their client without diving too deep into it um, and also explain how FEMA's policies work because you know FEMA's a government agency FEMA over the course of the last 30 years has had some incidences some ups and downs there <laughs> many, many many downs many incidences let's say in the Gulf Coast just a few minor incidences. There was one, I think, in New Orleans, right? Yeah, yeah, and I think we've got some issues in Puerto Rico. Houston, Texas. Yep, there was Houston. So FEMA's funds are robust because of our tax dollars, but they also have to be limited in, the, in, in, this, this, in a similar way because they're having to provide flood coverage for every homeowner that is in a, a zone that where it's required. So there's a cap on the amount of coverage that you can obtain from FEMA on your flood policy for the structure itself and for your personal property. And for coverage to, of the structure on a flood policy, it's capped at $250,000. I don't care if you have a Keava Kapu mansion or you, a simple standard you know, three bedroom, two bath home uh, $250,000 is what you have access to. Wow. Um, and also, you know, personal property coverage. That is incredibly low. Caps out at... For Hawaii. 100000 Yeah. Um, it makes the conversation simple because you say, look, this is what they're able to get. This is the cap on it. Um, and so if they are in Zone X, the requirements you know, FEMA has for insuring the property are pretty straightforward. You know, if they see Zone X, the rates are going to be you know, pretty standard, you know, and, and consistent regardless of the property itself. Um, you know, there's specific information we have to input into the system when we're running an application for a flood um, that might, you, where the premiums might vary a little bit, but you're looking most of the time under a thousand dollars a year, so not extreme.
you uh, if you are in a high risk flood zone, North Kihei um, is where we do you know, quite a bit of, of uh, flood insurance where the, you know, and we've seen flooding in North Kihei as well uh, in the past couple of years. Uh, then you're diving into a lot more in terms of what the client is responsible for providing to us so that we can provide FEMA with the documentation uh, and the correct information so that their property is rated accurately. Um, and the key component of that is what's called the elevation certificate. And the elevation certificate is a, is a report that you obtain from a licensed surveyor uh, separate from the traditional survey that, that they'll do. Um, and it's specific to the structure and, the, and to the house itself. Uh, I won't get into too much detail on that, but FEMA wants to know, you know what's the foundation like? You, how would that house fare in a flood you know, incident? Um, you know, the main term is base flood elevation. So getting an elevation certificate establishes the base flood elevation and that document is what will verify what your rating needs to be. Um, so if you're in a higher risk flood zone, you know, or the property your client is purchasing is in a higher risk flood zone, you know, that's going to be a key component in, in them obtaining a policy. Uh, you can still get a flood insurance policy from FEMA without, uh, without an elevation certificate, but you will pay for yeah. that question mark. Uh, I ran a quote for flood for a friend of mine who was renting and just wanted to know what it would cost to cover his personal property in case and he is you know, close to the ocean. So in the case of a tsunami, you, how much would it cost to, um, to cover my personal property? And hilariously, for $10,000 know, in personal property coverage, without an elevation certificate, without that specific information, verification docu documents, to FEMA it was $12,000 a year. Wow. Like, you're not going to tell us really much about this house or if the construction of the structure, if there is a tsunami, that thing's going to be decimated along with all the personal property you're asking us to cover for them. Um, this is what it is. And it's just kind of like, I chuckled. And I called him back and I said, look, this is what it is going to be. And he went, I'll self-insure. <laughs> wow. So it, it, there's a range. Um, so it, it's important if you know, the lender requires you to get a flood policy in place and you're in a higher risk flood zone uh, that if you're a realtor, you make that an upfront aspect of the, the escrow process that you, you know, you're going to need to get a, a flood survey to get an elevation certificate. Now, sometimes if you, the property is already insured for, you know, for flooding and the sellers have had a policy in place because they've had to have one. 
a lot of the times the seller is going to have that elevation certificate. And if it hasn't been too long from when they purchased the home and, and got that elevation certificate, uh, that you can use an existing certificate for your flood policy. So that will come up in the conversation when you're going through the escrow process. You need to have flood, you, know, you need to obtain the elevation certificate from the sellers. Now, the times when I've seen that buyers have to get their own and pay you know, four or $500 for the survey to get that certificate is with bank owned property. You know, lenders uh, wipe their hands clean of any, any assurances, any responsibility in doing any of that. So I had a client who um, purchased bank owned property. There was absolutely no elevation certificate to be found, you know, uh, sellers long gone. Um, so through the process, they eventually had to get a surveyor out there to do it. Um, but I did share with them what, without it, what the premiums would be and with it, what the premiums would be. So the cost of that survey was nominal in, uh, mm. in contrast to what the alternative was. It's like, hey, I'll shell out 500 bucks if that means I don't have to pay thousands. Oh, it's totally worth it. Yeah. Um, now, I have a yeah. question. When it comes to flood insurance, if we have a hurricane roll through Maui, heavy rains, and the heavy rains, let's say it's, it causes flooding through those gulches in Haiku, and I never had a river in my backyard before, but now suddenly I've got this river coming through my yard and it hits my house. Uh, will my, my flood insurance cover that or do I need to have a separate hurricane plan? So the hurricane initiated the flooding. Yeah. That damaged your home. Yes. So I'll be safe by saying case by case basis. Of course. Now, it's a common question because, like I said, torrential rain, groundwater flooding, more likely than a river overflowing for, for people, you know, depending on where they live. Yeah. It's the, you, it's the situational where, it's the situational circumstances where what happened first? So the hurricane storm came in, you wreaked havoc on the island, and you have comprehensive damage on many fronts to your home. Now, because it was a hurricane and because it was wind-driven rain, that's covered under either, in State Farm's case, we are one of the only companies in Hawaii that still offers their own hurricane insurance since Aniki. A lot of companies went out of business after Aniki because they didn't have the financial strength to indemnify all of their clients. Mm. Um, so it's part of State Farm's homeowner's policy. Or most of the time, if people are with another carrier, they have two policies. They'll have their homeowner's insurance that covers fire, you know, covers flooding from within, covers theft. Um, and then they'll have hurricane insurance separately with another company. Uh, so. What happened that caused that flooding? Wind-driven rain from a hurricane. Um, that there is gonna be you know, coverage for repairs or reconstruction of your house on that hurricane policy. Um, now, hurricane insurance kicks in 
when there is a named storm warning by the National Weather Service. So a great example that we can look to is a couple years ago with Hurricane Lane and Tropical Storm Olivia. So I, I use that frequently so that it's kind of a, a clear um, picture for, for folks. So Hurricane Lane was a named storm warning for Maui County. But, you know, thank goodness it, uh, it didn't make, you know, uh, the kind of uh, impact that it could have made. Um, but if there was damage to your home during that storm and 72 hours after the storm passes, uh, it would have been covered under your hurricane policy. Now, in, you know, comparison to Lane from Olivia, Olivia was a tropical storm warning. Wind-driven rain or windstorm damage is covered up to a hurricane on your homeowner's policy. So some of our clients paid off their mortgage. Hurricane's not required anymore. They're on retired and on fixed income, trying to cut costs where they can and say, look, you know, chances that there's going to be a hurricane disaster are, are lower than you know a fire. And we just can't afford a hurricane anymore and we want to take it off of our policy. Of course, we're going to encourage people that, hey, you worked really hard to own this home outright. I would encourage you to just consider keeping it protected the way you have protected it over the course of 30 years. But we also don't have an Aniki to point to here in Maui. So I understand where they're coming from. Um, when Lane was barreling down on us, oh, the calls we got. Whether it was, do I have it? I know you told me I should keep it. Can I still put it back on? Uh, if I put it back on and nothing happens, can I take it off? Well, the short answer for that is no. If you put hurricane coverage on your policy, um, you know you need to keep it for a calendar year. Um, so you, we do get a lot of calls about that. Uh, and with Lane and Olivia, one of the, yeah, I wouldn't say funny things, but one of the interesting things was, People who didn't have hurricane coverage on their home you know, would say, well, I hope it's a tropical storm. And people who have been paying for their hurricane coverage for a long time and invested a lot of money into, uh, into never having to use that hurricane coverage say, well, I hope it's a hurricane because I've been paying for this hurricane insurance. And, you know, if it's the big one's going to hit, I, you know, I want to know that I'm going to get my, my investment, you know, my money's worth, so to speak. And I know it's kind of silly to say, but... Um, two sides of the of the windstorm damage coin um, that uh, you know you might expect to see if if God forbid we do get the big one uh, is what was the status of the storm when the warning was issued and when it makes landfall and 72 hours afterwards um, the majority of damage that we've seen with hurricanes in the Gulf Coast um, it's going to be, it's more likely that it's going to be your roof coming off, windows blown out, wind-driven rain now blasting into the interior and not just compromising the structure of your home, but also damage to your personal property in, inside. Uh, you're now displaced from your home and you need to immediately get loss of use coverage relief uh, which is something that extends on most hurricane policies. Uh, you can choose your coverage limits on you know, uh, policies with other companies. You can kind of a la carte and set your own limits. State Farms is more comprehensive because uh, historically that's what they've seen is instead of uh, 
giving that customization option is we, you know, we just go ahead and say, look, there's coverage across, you know, the policy for you know, your homeowners and your hurricane. Um, so the amount of loss can rack up really, really quickly. People just think, oh, if there's, you know, some shingles off my roof, you know, uh, or, you know, window blows out, you know, but there's also, I can't live in my home until it's repaired. And so I need, you know, financial assistance until, you know, we can get back in there. Um, and, um, the, kind of to circle back around to the, the Haiku Gulch flooding situation, if wind-driven rain floods out your house, let's say um, compromises a you know a, a sliding glass door out you know uh, and your floods out your lanai, floods into the house. The hurricane caused that. There's going to be coverage for that. Now, in the case of let's say Hurricane Harvey in Houston. There was hurricane storm landfall, but really big thing with that disaster was the volume of rain yeah. over such a short period of time. There were areas of Houston that were in zone X until that day. And unfortunately, those folks that were you know, impacted and their homes were flooded up to the second story their mortgage company didn't require them to carry flood insurance because they were in a low-risk zone until the heavens opened. Now, all of a sudden, FEMA have to, have, might, have, you know, in the future, have to go back and redraw the flood zone, the flood zone map. And they're, they're looking at that. Absolutely. Yeah. And part of it is, I mean, clearly climate change is one aspect of it and why it's a good idea to, to have this extra coverage because, you know, over the last decade, we've seen increased numbers of name storms just globally, right? Um, more storms in the Pacific. Uh, so, so that makes sense. But another thing that people don't tend to point to is the hardening of the watershed. So, so where traditionally with the watershed, we think, you know, it rains and then it goes into the ground and then it goes into the groundwater and then, it, you know, it's the water cycle that we all learned in school. Now, because of all of the buildings that we've built, all the roads we've built, uh, parking lots, any infrastructure really that hardens the ground. And Houston was a great example of, of this, where the water has no place to seep into, no, no way to go through the ground and into to the bedrock. So all of that is just staying put. And, and that's, that's an issue that we're seeing around the United States, globally, and even here, how, how the hardening of the watershed affects things. So, you know, if, if you legitimately are concerned about climate change, which you very much should be, it's a reality that this is an issue, then you should really be concerned about protecting your investments and your property and, and getting some, some good insurance coverage. Well, and it's funny, you know, State Farm being, you know, a big corporation, that they have climatology department at their headquarters in Illinois. I didn't realize that. They have a meteorology department at their headquarters in Illinois. Um, a lot of realtors know, and they tell me, you know, or remind me, so to speak, um, that, you know, State Farm has limitations on property that we can cover as far as locations concerned. Um, I think it's 
State Farm looking ahead to the future and setting themselves up for continued success in terms of being able to cover their clients for the long term, yeah, stay in business for the long term, is that we are unable to insure any property that is within a thousand feet from the oceanfront. Uh, a lot of times it's a condo we can't do. So we have a similar to location tool. We type in the address, it GPSs where that condo is located, even if it's on the top floor. If the building is within that thousand feet mark, uh, it's ineligible for insurance with State Farm and we refer to them to a, a list of brokers who can uh, get them a policy with a different carrier that does insure property within a thousand feet from the ocean. I'm not a Notre Dame type of person. Nostradamus? Nostradamus. Did I, I say Notre Dame? Yeah, like the hunchback. That's right. <laughs> uh, Nostradamus, thank you. Yeah. I'm not a Nostradamus type of person as far as uh, Chicken Little, Sky is Falling. But the writing is, start, is starting to be written on the wall. And the insurance industry is going to change dramatically. I think... It, from now until 2050, when they say that we've hit critical mass on you know, the earth warming and extreme weather events, you know, I think uh, in Florida, whether yesterday or a couple of days ago, temperature dropped so fast into the 30s that iguanas were falling from the trees. Well, that sounds like something out of the Old Testament, but we're going to see bombulous clouds and superstorms and you know, uh, polar vortexes, you know, uh, along with uh, extreme hurricane seasons, you know, moving forward, coastal flooding. The insurance industry is going to respond in kind to climate change, and they're going to do it to protect their financial interests, but also looking forward to the future and saying we need to completely restructure how this industry works in protecting property because otherwise we're just going to be paying out into, into uh, insolvency. Yeah, they're going to go bust. And you're going to have an aniki situation where, you know, sorry, we're out of money. I uh, can't help you. Mm. Uh, better luck next time. Wildfire is the other piece of that that we've seen. I've chatted with uh, State Farm agents, you know, in California, if we have clients that have, you know, insurance there uh, as well as here, um, that's their hurricane projection you, uh, crisis, so to speak, that they're going through. And they're restructuring. A lot of companies are restructuring as we speak. Par towns like Paradise, California, I think in the future are going to have a tough time getting property insurance. You know, if you live near a forest in a wildfire prone area, you either are going to have you know, challenges in getting a company to insure you for a reasonable rate, or they're going to start asking questions like, do you have a sprinkler system throughout your entire house? Do you have a standpipe, you know, next to the building in your condo, you know, in the condo unit that you, that you own? Uh, how close are you to the fire station? You know, not are you less than five miles from the fire station, but uh, are you less than three miles or whatever? So in response to the increase of loss due to wildfire, 
I think you'll see a lot of companies are going to restructure accordingly. Yeah, everybody needs to adapt. I mean, the the individuals, but also the the businesses that that are doing business in these areas. Um, you know, you're you're talking about insurance, which makes sense, but. I mean, it even comes down to the power companies having to change the way that they function in California to try and mitigate causing fires and then figuring out, well, who's responsible if a, if a fire happens. So, yeah, it makes sense that a, a large company like State Farm that has an obligation to all of its other clients to be able to, to pay them back um, would need to change their business practices when it comes to, to fire. I, I want to use this as a little bit of a transition um, because one of the, the things that people might not know about you is you volunteer a lot because of your affiliation with your wife and her affiliation with Maui Juliao Foundation. And I was wondering if you might want to talk about what that is and what you've done with them. That's an elegant segue, Jason. Thank you. Thanks. Since we're on the topic of environmental issues. Environmental or, or issues, climate change, yeah. So Maui Juliao, excuse me, Juliao Foundation is an educational nonprofit that was established and set up by a, a former schoolmate of mine and friend, Malia Cahill. Um, gosh, and it's been, I think it's been seven, no, it's eight, 10 years now that she's uh, been the director, founder uh, and director of this foundation. And um, I was introduced to it soon after I moved back in 2012 uh, and have been involved, uh, you know, over the course of the last, uh, you know, the last uh, eight years now, um, they provide environmental education and filmmaking opportunities for seventh to twelfth graders. Um, basically, what that means is it's an extracurricular film club where students learn on one side. Uh, the techniques and the art of visual storytelling of filmmaking so everything from how to you know uh, frame a shot how to use a camera how to edit uh, and they do uh, documentaries on environmental issues here on Maui and here in Hawaii and then uh, abroad as well um, so t two ways that they learn you know, not only about these issues that are going to impact them you know, when time goes on, getting them to understand how their lifestyle and the way that they live their life impacts the environment, the things that they can do to change their lifestyle as far as being consumers, as far as, uh, you know, how much trash they create as citizens, uh, you know, what the greater impacts are on the community and the environment here, um, and being able to, to intelligently communicate that to the community through you know, multimedia. Um, they do fun little fictional, uh, you know, or, or somewhat fictional kind of allegories, if you will, or storytelling, you know. Uh, where there's characters and there's scripts, uh, but more so are doing documentaries where they're they're engaging the community, they're interviewing people who are working really hard on these environmental issues, um, and bringing them to light. Uh, it's a, a wonderful thing that I was so 
blessed to be able to kind of be recruited to fall into uh, eight years ago. Uh, I wish it existed when I was a kid. Yeah. And I'm really happy to see that they are part of a larger community nationally of other groups, other foundations and organizations that are doing the same things they're doing. So they see that there's camaraderie uh, in uh, not only their pursuits or, or the work that these kids are doing, um, but also that uh, they're part of a, a larger world of, um, of this zenial generation. Is that what we're calling that? I guess so. I think that's the thing. I like right? that. It's, it has a good ring to it. Zennials. Yeah. Um, and it's incredible. You know, you see what uh, what young people are doing on a global scale. You know, um, whether you, regardless of your you know opinion of how Greta Thunberg approaches climate crisis, uh, there's an emotional connection that these kids have uh, to what the future has in store, um, and it sh it scares them. Should scare us a lot more, you know, than uh, even even one generation or half a generation older. Um, we should focus on on what we can do to make a change, you know, make a positive impact. Um, and you, know, of course, oh, microplastics is a is a big thing here in Hawaii because we're seeing it wash up on our shores. Uh, you know, uh, wastefulness. Um, how you know super consumerism contributes to you know our our uh, environmental impacts and instead of kids being overwhelmed with the scope of the problem and what can i really do they do a lot um, and now there's a, a a cousin of the maui Huliao foundation uh that once my wife uh, was introduced to Juliao and got involved um, you know, full time into the program as a you know program assistant to, to Malia, being the director. Um, that they started what's called Juliao Green Events. Now, that in of itself is really the best example of how you know real, concrete, pragmatic steps can be taken in, in our Maui community uh, to uh, you know to address these you know issues of. Uh, the landfill being almost full. I think when Al, uh, Alan Arakawa was still mayor, you, he made it clear that the Maui landfill has a uh, has an, a limit that they're approaching, and that they're even. Uh, and I mean, I, I you may know more about this than I do, but uh, you know, consequences that the EPA had brought to Maui County and saying, "Look, you know, you got to figure out what you're going to do." Oahu got on that pretty quickly and now they burn their trash. Now, I, you know, that may not be the best option for us necessarily, uh, but one thing we can all do is, and you see legislative steps taken, which is awesome, um, to curb single-use plastic, yeah. styrofoam ban, no cigarettes on the beach. Those are, are real steps that the community is taking you know, and uh, Juliao Green events, their big thing is engaging the communities, you know, or community events where a lot of waste is generated and work to help those, or those uh, event organizers uh, facilitate the, the sorting, 
of the different materials that would otherwise just go into a trash can or a dumpster, um, sorting them out so that the trash goes to the landfill, compostables are, and, you know, and food waste is going towards, let's say, use in agriculture, and recycles, or recyclables are properly uh, and, and accurately recycled. Because uh, it's not a one, you know, uh, it's not an all-in-one. You know, plastics, the types of plastics vary, and so what's recyclable and not recyclable, you know, a lot of people are not sure. So um, they started getting involved you know, in real-world solutions, um, and have been one of those nonprofit, you know, organizations that have been at the forefront of trying to. Uh, encourage the county to take legislative steps, you know, to to uh, to curb the amount of waste that we generate. Um, I think it's a wonderful thing to see that the county and the state at large is starting to make strides in informing and educating our tourists, our tourism population, you know, as to best practices. Yeah, because we have people coming from all over the world. You, their society and cultures or what systems for waste, you know, um, limiting waste, those systems are going to be different. Sometimes they're non-existent. Yeah. And so if you're coming from a place where you're used to just throwing everything into a trash can um, and there, there isn't a, you know, let's say a waste station, you know, in your, uh, in your, Kanapali Resort, where there's the opportunity to separate things like compostable or food waste or recyclables, then we haven't done our jobs as a community to set ourselves up for success as our tourism population increases consistently year to year. What kind of Maui uh, am I going to be living in? Are you going to be living in? Our kids are going to be living in in the future. If we're not going to put these things in place now, and uh, you, we always say live pono, I think that's thrown around a lot, but also challenge you know, our visitors to be a part of it. Well, I think you brought up a, a really great point, which is not just challenge them, but facilitate it. We need to make it easier for our visitors to not fall into the bad habits or behaviors that cause all of this pollution here on our, our island. I mean, geez, you go out to like Wainapanapa. You, you go out to, to really any coastal area. Find the more remote coastal areas on Maui and you'll find microplastics there. And it would be great to blame just the visitors and the mainlanders. You know, that's what we love to do. I wish we could build a wall around Maui to, to protect us from microplastics. But the thing is, I think if we built a wall around Maui, we would just fill up with microplastics because it's us here and it's the people who are coming here. You know, there was so much opposition to something that now makes so much sense, like the styrofoam ban. Mm. You know, society didn't collapse. Our economy didn't collapse because, you know, we banned styrofoam products. Right? Did I miss something? Big Chemical funded the don't take our plate lunch, you uh, kind of 
response campaign to the styrofoam ban. Yeah, I mean that was not grassroots. Reef safe sunscreen. Did oh, did our economy one. collapse when when we we mandated that people need reef safe sunscreen? No, we you find a way. Um, I I am hopeful that soon we'll we'll get rid of plastic utensils. I am infuriated when. I see somebody eating with a plastic utensil and it like snaps off in front of them and they just throw it away and grab another one. You know, they're, they're cheaply made. I carry a fork with me in my briefcase. I've got like the, the counties, uh, the county of Maui set of, of utensils. The, now they sell them in, in various stores. I bring a water bottle with me. Like there, these are things that maybe add some level of challenge to my life because now I have to remember to bring a fork with me and remember to bring a water bottle with me. But let's say if we were on Maui a hundred years ago, I'm sure our level of hardship as far as our everyday life would have been far more difficult than it is now. So I can handle the hardship of having to carry a water bottle with me if it means that I'm not adding more junk to this island. And one of the other infuriating things is that people have this out of sight, out of mind mentality when it comes to their waste. They, you know, if you don't see where it goes, then you just assume it's going to the right place, wherever it needs to be. So let me, let's, let's see. What are some of the, the green events that, that you've done or that, that we've worked at together? Um, so the, the there was most, like the yeah, food the and mo- film festival. The food and film festival, that's, you know, Juliao's annual uh, major fundraiser. It's really fun. They, they have a uh, fantastic, you know, uh, uh, food stations, various chefs that donate their time and their resources um, to you know prepare you know, uh, small plates that you can kind of bounce around and uh, and enjoy, uh, and then you get a chance to watch all the films that the kids made over the course of the of the, the year, um, and so that's a no brainer. It's only about a hundred people usually that attend the event, uh, but uh, of course they're going to be there you know, doing their thing. But even with 100 people, we're talking like hundreds of pounds of waste that's getting diverted from the landfill just from that one event, right? Absolutely. And um, you guys are, when they do that event, they're mindful of the, the materials that they're using. And I, I didn't mention it uh, initially talking about green events, you know, and the sorting of, of, this, of these different types of waste, but an integral part of what Green Events does, and I think even as important as physically being there to facilitate the waste management during the event, is getting in front of the vendors and getting them committed to using compostable products. If they don't do that, there's really not, there's no point in them being there, but it does make the job a lot harder, and it's not setting the event up for success. So in the beginning, there was some challenge. Vendors were used to using the products that they obtain, uh, you know, f- for their let's say meals, um, whatever food products that they sell out in the world, uh, and they're they're just used to using those products and ordering them in bulk. So they aren't going to think twice to go out of their way to purchase something else. Uh, so Green Events is, is really focused on saying, you know, look, instead of styrofoam, you know, use this compostable clamshell. 
Uh, instead of a plastic fork, use this, you know, like plastic. You know, something that will break down quicker uh, in, in the landfill or, um, and, uh, and will have, you know, less of environmental impact on the soil, let's say. Um, it won't last a thousand years in there, it'll last 50 years in there. And so in the beginning it was a challenge. Uh, as time has gone by, they've been able to show vendors how doable it is. Uh, that the uh, cost difference is minimal, or, or in some cases, as time goes by, more affordable. Yeah. And it's allowed them to participate in much, much larger community events. So rather than 100 people, um, we're talking about thousands of people. And the, the amount of waste that coincides with how, you know, that, those type of numbers. Uh, so... Uh, Ulu Fest is a great community event that takes place annually at Maui Botanical Gardens. Um, you know, it's a Hawaiian culture event. It's a great food event. There's amazing music, arts and crafts. Uh, and when they did their first Ulu Fest, at the end of it, after all the waste was sorted, there was a industrial like construction sized dumpster that is on the property there that that is used for for the waste you know for for the ulu fest um and previously there were two groundskeepers that really were responsible for picking up all the trash bags at the end of the event and tossing them into this dumpster um, when we were finished the groundskeeper came up to our group that had just you know, completed the sorting of, of all the waste and said, last year this dumpster was full at the end of the night. He's like, we only see the very bottom layer of this dumpster full of trash now. So they went from a full construction size dumpster, uh, you know, site size dumpster to just the very bottom layer of that dumpster. Yeah. And it's, for them to see that kind of impact, not to mention how happy they were not to have to pick up so many bags of trash, but to see that kind of impact from one year to the next floored me. Yeah. And people at the events love it. They love seeing the effort. They love feeling like they're a part of something that's making a difference, that's being helpful, that's making a change. And also the amazing thing to me is even at these events I've been at where they've, they have only the compostable products, where, where they tell the vendors, don't give out trash. Still, somehow, trash finds its way into the event and, and makes its way into the, the whole situation. What makes it worthwhile manning one of these zero-waste stations you know, where visitors, you know, event visitors have the opportunity to see it in action, you know, the education part of it is the most surprising to me. Uh, and I still continue to learn from one event to the next, things that are compostable and recyclable and not. Um, I'll have either my wife or M Malia or you know, some of the, um, the more you know, uh, involved uh, members of Julio Green events um, come to correct me. I'll say, oh yeah, that's compostable. And then my wife says, actually it's not. I'm like, it's not? But with visitors to these events, when they come up with their food plates and, and cutlery and you know, uh, recyclable materials, 
uh, and they're looking at the thing and they're looking at the, you know, the signs uh, on each, uh, you know, uh, puka where, you know, all the different things are going to go. You, they're really stoked to do it. They're really, really grateful that we're there and they'll start the process of doing it and we will have to kind of guide them through it. So many times these folks are shocked that what they think is recyclable is actually not. Yeah. And they'll say, really? Really? Wow. I had no idea. And it's great to be there. It's great to curb the amount of waste that these community events you know, uh, just inherently create. Um, but maybe, and I'm confident and hopeful, when that person goes back home and is about to either throw something away or recycle something, they're going to stop and be like, oh, yeah, that's right. This particular container, plastic container, is not a, a type that's recyclable. And that, I really feel like that's starting to happen. Um, same thing with the plastic straw. Unfortunately, it takes something like that video of the turtle having a plastic straw pulled out of its nostril and it writhing in pain for people to wake up and realize something like a plastic straw can have that kind of impact you down the road on you know our treasured green sea turtles you know uh something we all feel proud of that we have you know we have green sea turtles you know it's it's a symbol of hawaii um, so if it takes those extreme examples for people to, to stop and think, you know, to say, you guys should get paper straws. I know paper straws don't last that not long. They're not the best in terms of, uh, you know, their function in comparison to a plastic straw. Uh, but restaurants, bars that are transitioning into paper, people take notice and, even to the point where people are going out to dinner or, you know, uh, going for fast food and they're saying no straw, please, you know, or establishments are changing their their service policies, straw upon request. Yeah. Um, and, you've, and that's there, happening. There are even places like um, Moku Roots is, mm. is a good example. I like how they do it where there's no to-go containers. You can, like, purchase a container to-go that's reusable or put down a deposit, and then when you return it, you get your deposit back. I think they do the same thing with straws. I mean, you can even turn a straw into like a, a cool flex. You know, like if, if you are one of those folks that really needs a straw for whatever purpose that, you know, for the, the past few thousand years of humanity and civilization, you would not have been able to thrive because you can only drink liquids through a straw. If you're one of those people, then get like a gold straw encrusted with diamonds. You can, <laughs> you can use it to show off. You can use um, the, the presence of mind and, and the importance of nature as an excuse to, to just flex your, your wealth and prosperity. The Argentinian community here on Maui, which is wonderfully robust, uh, is no stranger to the reusable straw because of their, you know, cultural uh, affinity for drinking yerba mate. Yeah. They have their wooden mate cup and they have their metal mate straw. And 
now that is taking on a whole new meaning. They're like, hey, we've been doing this for hundreds of years. You know, like, good to see you guys getting on board. Yeah, let's <laughs> let's just all do that. Now we all have mate straws. We're we're going really long with this, so I'm. I want to talk more, but I'm going to jump to, to the end. I'm going to jump to, to, to our little five questions, and then I'll have you Don, on again down the line um, when I get some more free time, and, and I'm loose on guests. So, Brendan O'Coleman, I, uh, I ask five questions to everybody at the end. I, don't, I think I, I told you what they were, but I didn't send them to you in advance, so you might have forgotten. Uh, first question, what book would you recommend to anybody listening? Not necessarily your favorite book or, or the most meaningful book, but the book that you would recommend. Wow. Great question. Um, I'm a history nerd. Uh, one of my hobbies. And a book that I have... Now I'm on my... Well, no. I'm, well, technically, I'm on my third copy because my first copy was uh, in a college course. My second copy, I, uh, I dog-eared and uh, stained, and you know, binding came apart. And so now I have my, you know, hopefully my last copy. Um, but I've I've also bought it for for other friends that are interested in in that similar subjects or subject matter. Uh, is a book that was written by an anthropologist named Jared Diamond, and it's entitled um, Guns, Germs, and Steel. And it's essentially a historical breakdown of colonization uh, and the impacts that, uh, you know, the, the beginnings of global society 500 years ago had on people and environment. And guns, germs, and steel being three things that, uh, you know, are, are uh, paramount in, you know, how those changes took place over time. You know, the impact on native populations, uh, impact on the environment, and kind of the, the beginning of our, our human story and how we got to where we are now. Uh, and uh, really amazing perspective uh, and incredibly fascinating um, to, uh, you know, to, to look back and be able to make the, the connection so that regardless of what industry you're in, what your interests are, be able to have some sense of where we're going and if there are things that we should think about changing within ourselves as far as how, as far as how we live our lives uh, or on a macro scale, you know, as a society, the people we vote into office and what their priorities are, um, that we kind of have two choices. Uh, it's going to go in one direction or the other and we're, we're always at a point where we can choose to change. Um, and so Guns, Germs, and Steel really hit me uh, at a point in my life where I, you know, was starting to learn about these things um, and, you know, the consequences of our, of our you know, societal pursuits, if you will, with expansion, development, consumerism, you know, industry. And so I really like that one. Um, I'd recommend it to anybody. There's so many things in it that... Uh, that different people can pull from and, and lessons, you know, things you can take away from it. So, excellent. That's a good answer. You, right off the top of your head, too. That's, I could uh, I, I could go through a bunch of other ones, but um, that that's one that I I am quick to to mention. So I think 
No, that's a great recommendation. Not, uh, I don't dislike it when people just recommend the Bible, but I always kind of feel like it's a little bit of a cop-out. I've had, I've had several guests who have recommended the Bible, and I always force them to give me a little more detail as to why, uh, you know, what specifically. But you gave a, a very good, real, you know, solid recommendation. And I like nonfiction recommendations as well. I, I tend to give fiction recommendations. So, question number two. What is guaranteed to make you smile? What is guaranteed to make me smile? Um, I really enjoy watching people jump up to help others from a distance. Mm. when it's not volunteering because it looks good on your resume to be involved in charity. I mean, that's amazing. One of my favorite things about the larger real estate community is their philanthropy. Yeah. Everybody. Everybody I can think of right now is involved or committed to one or many organizations that do so much for the people and, and the place that we live in. Uh, but random acts of kindness, and in this day and age where you know, there's some uh, division, society division, if you will, don't need to get into that, I'm sure, you know, oh, you don't want to talk about to? the impeachment trial that's going on <laughs> right now as we speak? We were, it will always make me smile to have the opportunity to remind each other that we are human beings and our priorities, uh, a lot of our priorities are the same. Yeah. Health, safety, security, and happiness for ourselves and our families. And remembering that we're all in this together there's only one world you know and uh we all have amazing opportunities to to step in you know and show people that there's there's love there's hope they're not alone uh and uh that'll make me smile and i mean, on a on another note and uh you know, kind of, I wouldn't say embarrassing, but a uh, sillier note that uh, I've unfortunately acquired a, a uh, meme addiction. And uh, I, I know I'm not alone out there in the world, uh, but uh, a good meme will always get me. Yeah, it's, it's hard to pass up a good meme. Not as altruistic by any means, but <laughs> if you want the two ends of the spectrum. It's okay. I mean, my when I was asked this question, my examples were, were when Lantana clears her throat and the noise my dog makes when I feed her chips. You know, that the cartoonish crunching. So your answers are, are at least on par, if not better than my answers. I promise they're genuine. That's why I shared the meme one. Cause yeah. I, if anyone knows me well enough, if they, they will laugh at me knowing that I laugh at memes. Um, but, you know, I think that first one that you mentioned, it, that knowing you, I know that that's genuine because you genuinely love people like you love people on a, on a level that I'll admit I don't 
Like, like you're more, <laughs> you're more of a a optimistic extrovert than than I am, and and more so than than most people I know. And you genuinely care about folks. Um, one of the the things that I love about you is is your your hobbies. Often you end up turning that into an opportunity to volunteer for people. You're very into music. You like just playing with music and DJing on your own. And there have been multiple times where I'll, I'll be like, "What are you up to?" And you're like, "Oh, I'm DJing at a friend's wedding this weekend. Uh, you know, they they couldn't hire a DJ, so I'm doing it for them." And and you know, birthday parties and whatever else. Um, you, you backpack know, buddies bought you ball tournament. We, you know, Coming Ram, up in March. Ram is on, we're the first alternate for the waiting list. Our team didn't get back in time to say, yes, we want to do it. So they're going to give us bocce ball to practice with. Um, but, but hopefully I'll, I'll see you there. But yes, that was a genuine answer. You really do love seeing people care about each other. So that's, that's good. Um, what is something that you've changed your mind on? What is something that I've changed my mind on? Um, my attitude towards change uh, here on Maui. Oh, interesting. We fear change, or I'll speak for myself. I initially fear change. Uh, I am not alone in this community that we want Maui to stay Maui, but we can't change change. We, you know, we can help influence and steer what kind of change it is. Um, but from when I'm, from growing up here to when I moved back in 2012, and even in the last few years, I've changed my mind on my attitude approach to what Maui is going to be like in the future because I you know, made it my home. I hope you know, it will be my home. I'll, I'm going to do everything I can to, to assure that for myself and my family. Um, you know, funny that the nostalgia of the sugarcane industry uh, with my peers and some other people I've talked to, visitors as well, in a way, they miss it because it, in their minds, it harkens back to a time where our Central Valley was green yeah. when you flew in. And they say, you know what, I'm happy that you know, there isn't any more ash in the sky, uh, that the, the soil's no longer being degraded by you know, the practice of mass agriculture, you know, the slash and burn, um, you know, the work that's been done to to improve, you know, the environment, you know, in the wake of, uh, of the sugarcane industry. Um, but I understand the missing it because it's just part of our lives, part of this community for 150 years. Um, so when it ended, I'm like, oh, you know, here we go. You know, development's going to start right off the bat. And I'm sure, you know, the people are, are optimistic and hopeful, but also keeping a very sincere eye on, you know, what 
is going to happen to all 36,000 acres moving forward. We see a lot of amazing progress and, and real steps taken for diversified agriculture that Mahi Pono you know, initiated and said they're committed to. Um, and that's great. Um, same thing with development. I mean, affordable housing is a priority for everybody here on the island. Um, our economy lives and dies by the visitor industry. Um, there's a happy medium there for us to support measured and considered and sustainable growth and development moving forward. And so rather than me feeling like it ain't what it used to be, too many tourists on this island, you, uh, I always say colloquially, last howley off the boat syndrome. Okay, no more people, now that I'm here, no more people. To switch and say, look, what can I do? How can I be involved to be a part of that pursuit of balanced progress? Yeah. I've changed my mind on that in the last eight years of being back home. Nice. And I think there's so much participation you know, in the community, whether it's a real estate community, whether it's you know, support and involvement in you know, conscious environmental uh, issues and concrete things that we're doing here in the community to address those issues. Um, uh, we're, we're so blessed to have that here. And um, I'm really hopeful that that continued awareness, involvement, and participation is gonna drive us and steer us in a, in a positive direction so that we, we can grow together in a way that fits Maui in a way that's going to maintain what makes this place so special for the future. Um, so, mind changed on that? Excellent. Um, question number four, when have you failed and what did you learn? I know I, steer, I steal this from Randy Pausch, who was the, uh, the professor who was uh, dying of, of terminal cancer and gave his last, the last lecture, which mm. I'm sure people are familiar with. And if you're not, Google or YouTube last lecture. Uh, it's an emotional roller coaster, um, and I, I feel like vital for, for young people, especially uh, starting off, you know, uh, in the world as 18-year-olds, whether they're, you know, joining the workforce right off the bat or going to college. Um, but the biggest takeaway from that is that he said in, in life, sometimes you either win or you learn. When you win, quote unquote, I feel like you learn to replicate that. So at, you know, an athlete or a sports team or whatever, you, you, you win the Super Bowl, what do you do next year? Same thing. Yeah. The, uh, the people that are admired in the sports world are the perfectionists. You know, 
people talk about basketball players that you uh, not make a thousand jump shots, but shoot a thousand jump shots. Um, the coaches that uh, might win the game by 30 points and talk about what they could have done better. Um, best example of, I guess you could say failure or learning experience is the, I guess, approach that I've made in the working world over the last 10 years, um, that there are many sides to being in the people industry, if you will. You know, my opinion is that real estate, um, in insurance, if you approach it from being in the people industry, your experience is going to be a lot more fulfilling and enriching. And when I started off, I just saw the potential for, you know, I had dollar signs in my eyes. I saw the potential for great success and um, material wealth accumulation. You know, and we need money in our lives in order to, you know, exist, exceed and thrive. Um, but I failed in growing and developing the real why. You know, why we get up and go to our place of work and work hard and spend more time with our coworkers and our colleagues than we do sometimes with our own families. Uh, so I, I failed in, uh, in transitioning and, and, and growing the, the true why, why I do what I do. And why it really is all about doing your best to help people, whether you're helping them with their property purchase or you're helping them protect themselves financially and now that I've transitioned to focus on that first, the financial gain has, has come more fluidly than starting off by saying, is, this, is the juice worth the squeeze with this person? Mm. And you know what, for those realtors who are on the grind whether you're starting out, whether your market is, you know, in the first time home buyer or it's in the, you know, luxury property market. There's nothing more impressive and admirable, in my opinion, than working as hard as so many realtors do on a contingency that they put in 110% for their clients without any guarantee of compensation. Yeah. It might take five years. It might take 10 years. It might never happen. I experienced that more times than <laughs> I closed with escrow. But once I changed to the relationship business, and the same thing with insurance, 
I started to have clients who said, you know what, I, I just don't think we're in a position right now where we can make a purchase decision or we're not there financially to be able to qualify for that mortgage. And then months down the road, I get a phone call and said, hey, I'm a friend of so-and-so's. They said how amazing you, know, you were, how hard you worked. And we just got pre-qualified and we've been house hunting and we, you know, we, we need help um, in the house search buying process and uh, we'd love to work with you. And when that happened, it was more of a validation than getting a commission check that I had started to correct my, my attitude and my outlook and approach to, to why I have been in this, you know, this world, this industry, in one way or another, for you know, for ten years. So yeah, um, it's a it's always a step by step process. You do have to protect yourself uh, from you know maybe going down a path where you know uh, heard the you know, the term before time vampire. You got to you got to protect yourself from the time vampires and the looky loos and the tire kickers and the open house addicts, uh, but. I've only benefited and succeeded from from the people first approach, and uh, and the you know the abundance comes with the sincerity. I think so. Five question number five. What one piece of advice would you give to anyone listening? Anyone? Anyone? How many people listen to your podcast? Like five or six. <laughs> <laughs> I'll be seven. Um, piece of advice. Approach everything from a place of joy. I know that sounds woo-woo. If my mom listened, she'd probably be like, yes, baby, yes. <laughs> you know, we've all read or heard about or read the Cliff's Notes on the book The Secret. You know, Positive projection. Yeah, the law of attraction. Law man. of attraction. In our industry, it's part of the existential approach that we take to what we do. Um, but my my personal theme for 2020 is approach it with joy. You know, uh, commit to approaching it with joy, whether it's business and personal relationships, health. Um, you. Out, outlook on society, outlook on our political climate, outlook on the climate itself, you know, uh, approach it with joy um, because the alternative is exhausting. Mm. Cynicism is exhausting. Negativity is exhausting. Um, and I think the other thing is allow yourself to have short-term memory when it comes to negative interactions or negative experiences because again there's an opportunity to learn you can make it constructive for yourself and being empathetic to all where different people are coming from really does help in coming out let's say just from a business standpoint 
the best realtors work their butts off to come out of the transaction process with a win-win. You're not always going to get the win-win. You're not always going to get maybe the friendliest, easiest to work with buyers and sellers, especially on the seller side, I know, because selling your home uh, can be an emotional challenge, parting with that, that place that you've called home for a long time. Um, but having a short-term memory on, on it sometimes is a good thing because it allows you to really take a step back and say, where is this person coming from? You know, or how do they like to interact? Mm. Or be treated? Or do business? Putting yourself in the other person's shoes. And it widens your range of, of potential customers you know, or clients. Some people say, you know, I really can't work with this type or that type. Or, you know, gosh, they're challenging. And it's like, hey, it's a challenge. Yeah. You know? uh, I don't know what the statistic is on average tenure uh, of people in the real estate industry. Um, I wasn't, I'd probably still be a realtor if I was, uh, you know, uh, the kind of producer that would have kept me in that industry. I won't lie about that. Uh, so I'm not one to, to teach people about what it takes to be successful in real estate. Um, but I've really felt successful in the past and want to maintain that outlook for the future and approaching it with joy um, because you know oh it's, you got one life to live but yeah. plus I, you know I'm a dummy from where I was 10 years ago so <laughs> so I think most of us are, are kind of dummies compared to or we were dummies compared to where we are now 10 years in the future so it's understandable but that's great advice the best maintain a student mentality any, any leader or mentor I've had is the best student. And if I learn anything from them, it's to always develop, always grow, always learn, and maintain that student mentality um, because there's, there's humility that's built into it. And then when you make mistakes or errors, you're in a great position mentally to recognize the, the potential lesson versus, you know, ah, that was a waste of time, or whatever, you know, your, your negative response might be, is to say, you know what I took away from that, you know, is I got to manage my client's expectations next time, you know, or I have to set them up and myself up for success, I have to do more homework on the inventory, so that's, uh, that's going to give you a happier life, and it's going to give you a better chance for, for the win-win, for sure. Mm. All right. Well, on that, uh, two and a half hours, I think that's good enough for now. Thank you for coming in and uh, teaching me about, about real estate and talking about yourself, and, and, uh, or teaching me about insurance, I should say. Um, and so thank you for, our, for listening, and any last words? Um, happy that you're now in this community, that you know, Ram and, uh, and HAR has, a, has you as a, as a member and a resource. Uh, we are spoiled rotten to be in this professional community on Maui. We, it's the best of the best. And um, if you or your clients have any insurance needs, feel free to reach out to Kid Okazaki State Farm.
<laughs> All right. Thanks for listening. Take care. Bye.